Peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth. We are going to pick up where we left off in the book of 2 Samuel. We have made it to chapter 12. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. So um, Lord here is being translated from the name or word Jehovah, just so you, understand, so you know where we're at with that. Um, so that's the entity or deity being worshipped at this point. It's just Lord in English. Um, Nathan is the sort of prophet or high priest, the person in those that you might think of as the head of the religion at this point, the person, the point person for when people want to interact with God or the religion. David is the same King David, David and Goliath, David. So Nathan has been sent to David with a message, with a parable. If you're reading the New King James Version like I'm reading, um, you'll see that's how the sort of um, title that's put over this section of the chapter. So all of that, and the Lord speaking to Nathan and then Nathan taking the message to David contradicts, like we've read before, what the New Testament says about no one having seen God at any time. No one's heard the Lord's voice or seen the Lord's form. So um, it's one of those contradictions where you'll have to choose what you want to believe. Um, it's like I said before, as a Christian, I choose to go with what Jesus says. And that's in the New Testament. And that's that um, no one has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, meaning Jesus. So all these other interactions with um, an entity described as or identified as the Lord in my mind, as a Christian, means they weren't actually with the Lord. They were interactions perhaps with the divine, with the supernatural, maybe even in some cases with demons, but they could not have been with the Lord since that's what Jesus says, since Jesus says otherwise. Also, um, if it was the Lord, why would the Lord be so biased and inconsistent and in some cases even seemingly petty? It doesn't seem like the nature or character of God Almighty to be petty or even inconsistent. But it is how I read, so we're just going to keep reading. Verse 2. So this is Nathan continuing to David with the message he's gotten from the Lord. And we're just going to read it as the Lord since that's how it's written. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. So in the parable that Nathan is presenting David, there were two men, one rich, one poor. In verse 2, the rich man had plenty, plenty of flocks and herds of livestock. Verse 3, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished, and it, gave, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. So a ewe is a few female lamb, um, and apparently it's the family pet, and it's doing things that uh, people do in modern times with their animals, with their pets. It's not recommended by science, science because... It's believed that's how many of the pandemics get their start, at least some of the more recent ones, by people interacting too closely with the animals and the diseases jumping, the viruses, the bacteria, the problems jumping from the animals who can handle them to people who cannot, and then mutating and then getting out of control. But it's how it reads, so we're going to keep reading. He's He eats and drinks with his uh, female lamb as if it was his own child. Verse 4, and a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to keep 
fair one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the rich man feels so entitled that he can take from the poor to feed his guest rather than take from the plenty that he has. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like American society and probably like many societies around the world where the poor are continued, continually asked to make sacrifices for the comfort of the rich. Um, and it's laid out in American tax system where uh, people who are wealthy are allowed to pay no taxes at all, whereas the poor pay more taxes than the rich do. And it's and somehow, sickly, it gets the poor to sign up for it, to vote for it, to keep systems like that in place where they continue to give what they have, the little that they have, to enrich the much that the rich have. It's, it's, it's psychotic, and yet it's very popular, and it's been that way for a very long time. It's still alive now. Um, so um, the rich man in this case is taking the one little female lamb that the poor man has to feed his guests rather than take from the multitude of livestock that he has. So there's a couple of things involved in there uh, with breaking the Big Ten. Um, there's coveting because he's coveting what the poor man has. He's taking it from him, so that's stealing it from him. And he says it's like a daughter to him. So even though it's an animal, uh, that's destruction of property. Uh, and in animal lovers' eyes, it'd be murder. But at the very least, it's theft and covetousness, two things that are no-nos that the rich are doing to the poor. Verse 5, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. So um, the New King James Version of the Bible labels this as a parable, Nathan's parable. But Nathan isn't presenting this as a parable to David. Instead, he's telling it to David as if it's something that's actually happened. And like I just said, in reality, it's something that happens all the time, where the rich take away from the poor so that they can stay comfortable and the rich and the wealth and the poor can go without, even with the little that they have being taken away from them for the comfort of the wealthy. So David is outraged at hearing that things like that happen. And he's saying, uh, he's basically swearing to God that um, the one who did that is going to die. The rich man who's guilty of doing that is uh, worthy of death. Verse six, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David is recognizing where the rich man went wrong. Um, the fact that he's taken from someone who doesn't have for his own uh, benefit, even though he already has plenty. And he's saying in his judgment, the rich person is um, uh, liable for paying four times what the lamb is worth because he took from the poor. So if you apply that again to the tax system, that makes sense. That makes more sense than having the poor paying more than the rich. So if you go by David's judgment there, the rich should be paying four times a tax rate four times that of the poor. But good luck getting that to pass in any Democratic or Republican Congress or presidency. It it seems far from happening. Um, but that's what David is saying. It would be righteous. That's what should happen. And that's what he should happen since he had no pity on the poor. Verse 7, And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. So now Nathan is letting David know 
uh, pick up the mirror, uh, it's you. You're the one who's guilty of that sin of being the rich and entitled and taking from the poor and needy for your own benefit. And he's then he's reminding him further of the different uh, trials in life that David had experienced from being chased and uh, nearly killed by Saul many different times, having to be on the run and seek asylum among the Philistines who he's shown very little loyalty to since he's become king. Verse 8, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. So now um, David is being reminded of how he came from very little as a shepherd following the sheep to now king of the nation and having both houses, the house of Judah, which is considered a house all its own, even though it's really just one of the 12, one of the so-called 12 tribes, the largest of them, or one of the largest of them. And he's saying house of Israel separately as if it's a separate house from Judah, even though Judah is part of those, again, part of those tribes. Um, but they're considered two separate tribes, not at this point in the narrative. Um, but this seems to me to be an example of someone looking back on it retrospectively and editorializing because um, they don't officially become two separate houses um, as far as Judah and the house of Israel officially until after Solomon's reign. After Solomon passes away, then they get divided um, by the succession succeeding um, king after that. And they sort of break up into the officially two separate houses, Israel and Judah. But it seems like that they're being addressed that way at this point in the narrative. And David has been reminded of how, where he came from, his humble beginnings, and how rich he's been, how richly he's been blessed to this point. Verse 9, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. So uh, Nathan um, is being, uh, seems directed by the Lord to call David out on his evil on the fact that he's um, taken someone else's wife, that was Uriah, the soldier, um, pried him with liquor to try and get him to discover that he'd taken his wife. And it seems clear that it wasn't an affair, a mutual affair, where um, Bathsheba had any choice in it. David just saw her, wanted her, called for her, and took her and had sex with her, impregnated her, and then sent her back to her house uh, for her husband to discover it. And then when her husband wasn't quick enough in discovering it, as we read, David set him up to be killed and even put a hit out on him and had him killed in battle. Um, so all of that is what's being called out to David now. And we read that in a previous chapter or two. Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. So now David, the fact that David has taken someone else's wife, Uriah's by name, um, as his own, Bathsheba, and impregnated her, and, um, and all of that is being considered wicked, um, and that's what David is being called out for in, um, in um, this verse. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. 
So it seems David is being saying what you've done is going to be done back to you. You're going to reap what you've sown and you're going to reap it several times over. He's being told because he took someone else's wife and um, secretly had sex with her, impregnated her as if he, she was his, and then did all that dirt to Uriah. Um, because he did all that, now it seems Nathan is telling him the Lord is going to repay him by letting his wives be taken in. All of this lets us know that the modern day Bible thumpers get it wrong once again, where they demonize gay people and same sex marriage and overlook and they use the crutches of saying, oh, and second marriage is supposed to be between one man and one woman. And they thump a Bible and say that's the case, but clearly that's not the case. We've read again and again that that's not the case. David took Bathsheba to have sex with her, even though he already had more than one wife. He had several wives and children from them. And still, that wasn't enough for him. He took some other um, man's wife and uh, impregnated, impregnated her also. Only in this instance, he's being called out for it. We've read previous incidents where they aren't called out for having multiple wives at all. That's because that was the norm. A man could have as many wives, side pieces, and even prostitutes. And in some cases, even uh, male lovers like David had Jonathan. They were lovers, whether they were sexually involved or not. They were considered lovers because David even says that the love he had for Jonathan surpassed the love that he had for women. So if you think of the, the love between man and woman being sexually based, then the love he had for Jonathan was surpassed that. So at the very least, it seems it was also sexual sex was also included in that love. Uh, but however you want to look at it, it's uh, a man was entitled to have all of those things as long as it wasn't someone else's wife. And it seems here that that's where David made his misstep um, and why all the judgment is being passed on him. And he's being told now a prophecy that um, he's going to um, have the same treatment done to him as far as his wives and, um, and uh, other people taking them from him. Verse 12, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So Nathan is uh, letting David know his secret sins are going to be exposed and the fact that he's going to openly reap what he's sown and everybody's going to be able to see all the wickedness being repaid back to him. Verse 13, so David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. So um, David has confessed that he's sinned. So that's repentance. And he's um, and just as quickly as he's confessed it, Nathan is also letting him know that he's not going to have to pay with his life for the sin that he's committed. Because he's also killed. Um, murder was part of his sin. He had Uriah killed, even though he wasn't the one to wield the sword or in modern times pull the trigger. He still set him up to be killed, put him in a place where he would be murdered. And then he was killed. Um, so it truly, he's the one, he might as well have pulled the trigger. He might as well have, um, wielded the knife, the sword, uh, because it's his doing that set it all up, set it all in motion and brought it about. Um, but he's being told he's not going to reap that. He's not going to have to die. It's not going to be an eye for an eye, even though that was what we read. That's what the order of the day was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So Technically, that's breaking the, that's contradicting, again, what we've already been told was laid out for the commandments of the people of the Old Testament. It's supposed to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So if he's taken one man's life, his life is supposed to be taken. And yet, 
You see contradiction. That's not what's that's not what's happening. Um, his sin is being put away. Verse 14. However, because by this deed you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who is born to you shall surely die. So instead of David paying with his life for um, the murder, for the adultery, for the theft, for the covetousness, for all of those four different sins of the Big Ten being broken by him, instead of him paying for with his life, instead his child is going to have to pay for it. So one thing you may note there that even though Bible thumpers in modern times will say, oh, no, the Lord doesn't do that. the um, And even the Bible itself later on, we're going to read where um, a man will pay for his own sins. I'm paraphrasing there. But um, I think it's in Jeremiah where um, where it, the issue is brought up again. And that it, um, it, Jeremiah is told that, no, um, it, the, 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 I'm going to paraphrase. The, Jeremiah says um, it, it approaches the Lord with the saying that the people are using of the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, meaning the parents ate something, did something bad, and the children are paying for it. Um, and then Jeremiah gets rebuked with that and told, no, the one who does the sinning is going to do the paying. The one who eats the sour grapes is that's the one whose teeth are going to be set on edge. Meaning that no, the one who sins is going to pay for the sin, not their following descendants, their generations after them. Yet that contradicts what we read previously. So um, when Moses was told, um, what is it? The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that's Exodus 34. And it goes on, uh, I think six and seven and eight are the verses where it talks about a description of the Lord being described there um, that does carry on the sins of the fathers to the generations following, I think, to the 10th generation of those who hate him. Um, so then, but then Bible thumpers will say, no, the Lord doesn't do that. Even the Bible, like I said itself in Jeremiah says, no, that the one who does the sinning is going to um, pay for their sins. So there's more contradictions in the Old Testament. Now, again, all of that is not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't affirm any of that. But those two contradictions of generational sin and paying for it and singular sin and paying for it, they both exist in the Old Testament. So if you're a Bible thumper who believes everything from Genesis to Revelation is what you're supposed to live by, how can you reconcile that? Because both of those, those contradict each other plainly. And yet, you have to choose which one you believe is the case. Does those singular person pay for their sins or do are some sins so bad that their generations after them pay for them? Generational sins are marked like Cain, for instance. And again, that also exists in the Bible. So there are contradictions. And if it's from God Almighty, why would God Almighty contradict God's self? That doesn't make any sense. But again, believe what you want. So anyway, back to where we're at. Verse 14. Um, Oh, oh, so um, David is being told um, because his sin is so terrible, uh, he's not going to pay for it, but his child is. So verse 15, then Nathan departed to his house and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and it became ill. So just like that, Nathan has gone on his way. And just like that, the narrator here is attributing a sickness that the child has um, uh, has uh, uh, developed to the Lord striking the child and presumably in payment for and fulfillment of the prophecy that Nathan just gave to David about his sin um, 
turning around and biting him in the behind. Verse 16, David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So David's trying to pray for his child to be healed, to be saved, basically not to not die for the prophecy that he just got from Nathan not to come true. And he's even fasting and praying, trying to make sure, doing all he can to make sure it doesn't happen. Verse 17, so the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. So uh, the elders uh, are trying to convince him to um, at least eat something, not just um, starve himself to death while he's fasting uh, for his sick child. And just on a side note, I kind of understand how he feels in that situation because I'm when my mama passed away. I had, and this may sound crazy, I had dreams that let me know she was about to go. I had family members who'd already deceased from my baby sister to um, my grandparents show up in a dream and they seemed to transform one by one at her bedside from my living sister to my deceased sister to other family members, they transformed in an instant from one to the other to the other. And the next thing I know, my mother was being carried away in the clouds. And I woke up, you know, terrified that that was it. And um, it wasn't long after that, that she passed away. And I remember when I visited her in the hospital before she was in hospice, or when she was in the hospital, I first diagnosed, um, doing the same thing, going to the hospital chapel, um, and praying, and I remember going through fasting and doing all I could at her bedside, trying to see if I could do anything to make it not be true. And so, reading that um, David did something similar, um, trying to prevent what he had seen has been told is going to happen from happening, I can I feel for him. I know I kind of understand. Anyway, verse seventeen. So the elders of his house arose and went to him. Um, but he, they couldn't convince him. Verse 18, then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. So um, now David is still in his feelings about what's going on with his child. And yet the elders realize now that his child is gone. And so they're kind of afraid to approach him and let him know that uh, his baby's dead, um, afraid that he might react violently. Verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David's picked up on the fact that they're standing around whispering and figures out that his baby must be gone. He asked them and they affirmed that his child was dead. Verse 20, so David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. So David um, did his fasting, his praying, trying to save his child's life. It didn't work. So he's gone in, said a prayer, then gone on back to his house and summoned his servants to bring him something to eat. Verse 21, then his servant said to him, what is this that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, 
But when the child the child died, you arose and ate food. So um, the servants are wondering, what's in your mind? What are you doing? You fasted to save the child. Now the child is dead. You're eating. Verse 22. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? So he's letting them know he stopped eating and was fasting, hoping he could change the Lord's mind, that he would could appeal to the Lord by his fasting, by his prayers, by his uh, his change of heart and change of behavior to try and influence the Lord to act on his behalf and save his baby. Um, that's what he's explaining to the elders, or to his servants. In verse 23, but now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? He shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So he's saying, the period of trying to save this child from dying by fasting is done because this child is already dead. And he's saying, so no, no matter what he does at this point, he can't bring him back. He can't resurrect this child. And he's saying he shall um, though meet again, um, but not because his child is going to come back to him, but because he's going to go to the same place that his child was gone. They're going to meet again in death is what he's saying. Verse 24. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. So now um, it's saying comforting, comforted Bathsheba um, and went into her. So he's saying uh, what's being said is he had sex with Bathsheba again, the woman he um, took from Uriah uh, and killed Uriah for, basically. Um, he's had sex with her again, and they conceived a child. And you can see some time is being skipped in the narrative here because it's already skipped past all of the romance and the marriage all the way through the pregnancy and to the birth and even naming of the child that the child was named Solomon. So it's the same Solomon of history, uh, wisest man in history according to um, religion anyway, and richest man in history according to the Bible. Verse 25, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So um, it's saying um, Jedidiah translates to beloved of the Lord. And it's saying um, he sent word, um, meaning the Lord sent word um, by the hand of Nathan to David as far as what to name the child, it seems. And again, that contradicts what we read about no one having heard God's voice or seen God's form in the New Testament. But again, it's how it reads. That's how we're reading it. Um, and so it, Solomon is also called Jedidiah. Uh, verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. So Joab is the general of his army, basically. And he's... Um, battling the people of Ammon. And we went over where the Ammonites originated from, from the Sodom and Gomorrah story. They're um, descendants of incest. Um, when the two daughters of Lot uh, got him drunk, according to the narrative, he's grown behind man, but his daughters got him drunk uh, two nights in a row, and two nights in a row had sex with him, uh, according to the narrative. In modern terms, it would be he molested them because they were his daughters. Um, he got drunk and had sex with both his daughters and impregnated both his daughters. And that's, according to the Bible, the origination or the origins of the people 
of Amman, and it's the same Amman in the country of Jordan in modern times um, that we'll be talking about here. Verse 27, and Joab sent messengers to David and said, I fought against Rabbah and have taken the city's water supply. So uh, Joab, the, that, the, the army commander, basically, has sent back to David the king, letting him know he's um, conquered the city of Rabbah and even taken control of the water supply. And of course, um, any city, any area is going to need a supply of fresh potable water, as Jeopardy calls it, um, drinkable water. Other for just to sustain life. So he's letting him know he's taking control of what it takes for the city to have life in it. Verse 28, now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So Joab is letting the king know um, the city's yours for the taking. Gather some people and go ahead and finish conquering it. Otherwise, he's going to do it and they're going to name it after him. Uh, verse 29, so David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. So David is taking the um, advice that his general Joab gave him, and he's um, gone to the city of um, Rabbah and taken it, defeated it, conquered it. Verse 30, then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. So if you want to search and see how much a talent is, I, I don't remember, just being honest. Uh, but you can see how much um, the weight of that is. Um, but however much it weighed, David has taken it from the king of uh, uh, Rabbah's head and taken it for himself. And he's also taken much spoil from the city. Verse 31, and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So um, the city was conquered by Joab, um, uh, defeated completely by David, and, um, and now he's returned back to Jerusalem. And they've put the people who were in it um, basically to slave labor, enslaved them as um, uh, iron workers and um, and hard labor, basically, uh, after he defeated them and captured them. Um, that's the last verse in this chapter. So, as always, thank you for reading along with me. I hope the Naked Truth is a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. I love you, and Merry Christmas. It's coming fast. Stay safe. God bless you. Thanks again. Peace be with you.